Welcome to Maximum HP from Fehu Games. I'm Lloyd Metcalf and all these rules are made up and the points don't matter. Whatever follows are my thoughts and opinions and I may get a lot of stuff wrong. I welcome comments and replies and I will get to them when I can. You can leave comments here on Anchor where this podcast is hosted or you can head on over to MaximumHP.com. This week I wanted to dig into, uh, we're going to take a little break from the Labyrinth Lord bits and pieces of rules that I've been going through. Talk about adventure creation, design, writing, all of that. So, um, I've done, I don't know, 21, 22 Kickstarters now. And most of those are all around adventure writing. Some were good. Some were, hmm, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, have to be, I have to be humble enough to admit that, you know, I've, I've written a couple of bad eggs, but, you know, you got to do them. Everybody's, everybody's got some bad eggs, but the good thing is that you learn from them. And at least they're out there. They're done. But anyway, adventure writing is something special. You're writing a story or designing a story, and you have no idea who the main characters are and what they're going to do. So that kind of sounds impossible, but yet it's not. But I think we should start off where, um, where does it start? Because the process, it's not like you're going to sit down and do the great American novel and write this incredible adventure um, from beginning to end without planning at all. So I look for inspiration. And there's a lot of places out there where you can get, you can find random tables and just stuffing arbitrary seemingly nonsensical things together can make for memorable adventures and excellent starting points to get your brain turning. Um, one of the things outside of just random tables online is um, Matt Finch's Tome of Adventure Design from Frog God Games. Uh, it may be Matt Finch and Bill Webb. I don't know. The Tome of Adventure Design is a big book of a whole bunch of random tables. I mean, it's a, it's more than that. It's got a lot of neat advice and things. Um, there's a great bit of advice early in that book. And I mean, I don't want to give away the book, so you should probably go get it. It's Tome of Adventure Design, T-O-M-E of Adventure Design by, from Frog God Games. And, it, and they go through this list... Um, of things that epic adventures should have. Uh, backstory, location, opposition, variation of challenge, exploration, race against time, resource management, milestones and conclusions, and continuation options. And I think uh, some of those sort of overlap. Some of those kind of come naturally. Uh, but it's a, really, it's a really interesting book on the topic and... Uh, they've got some prolific folks that have made a bunch of them, so I think it deserves some credit or at least uh, a read from even from casual dungeon masters putting together planning an adventure and writing an adventure are two totally different things. However, they're similar in that having that 
if you're creating your own world and you're piecing together adventures for your players, um, it should contain a lot of the same stuff, right? Uh, other places to get inspiration are Donjon, D-O-N-J-O-N. There's an online resource that has tons of random tables that you can just sort of click and click your way through. Sometimes I'll just read through monster descriptions and start asking why. The same with magic items. Why is this here? Where did it come from? What is it doing? What's its goals? Those sort of things. Um, sometimes just a setting. Um, if I if you sort of get a feel for like an idea for what your adventure should feel like, um, that helps. So like, is it going to be like a horror? And if so, what sort of horror? Is it a gore? Is it a suspense? Um, is it going to be on an island? Is it going to be in a tropical setting? Is it going to be um, snowy peaks of a mountain? Sometimes just thinking about that setting can give you these the core pieces. For me, um, there's a core like little popping point that comes off. Like I make a connection or something and I just get this like cool idea of something. And I, and I don't know how to say it any better than that. Um, well, I'm working on one now that's the, the purp a purple worm and um, a, the caterpillar master that can control them. You know, and that, that just, I'm like, there's an adventure here and it's coming together. So you, you got to uh, find those points of inspiration, that little pop, that click, just a something that... But you don't need to know the entire adventure. You just need to have this inspirational spark. And then you've got a starting point. Or this is how I do it anyway. Your mileage may vary. Um, and I, after that, I start with an outline. And my basic outline, I almost always go to pencil and paper. Because it's going to be messy. Um, and I feel like typing on in like word or some other format is already too formalized because I don't have an idea. I've only got this spark. So I need to figure out how all these various pieces are going to fit together. So for the one I'm working on now, um, there was just I, in the middle of the page, I wrote down the spark, you know, and maybe like how the first piece of the hook, even though I didn't know what it was. And then I start make a little line and I'm looking at things like the list from Tome of Adventure Design. This, I think is slowly starting to become a, a new standard for me. But the, at the top of the list is backstory. You know, so you got to have like, what's the back, like, what is going on or what happened or what's happening behind the scenes that got to here, you know, and it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be dramatic. And I really, for my initial outline, just wrote a couple of sentences, a few sentences, a line from the middle off to that couple of sentences. And then I start thinking about the other things on the list, the location. Well, that's easy enough if I know sort of got the spark with the thing and, and it sort of already starts to take shape that way. So I'll start to do a few notes on location, 
some of the things that are popping up as ideas, um, opposition and challenges that come up. You know, you just go through this list. Is there an expiration part? Um, and by the time I get to two or three of those items, and they don't need to be in the order, that's why I like to do it on paper. Because if I pick like, oh, idea for continuation pops up early on, I just shove a line from the middle off in another direction, pop in a, a note, that idea about that continuation, but move on. So I've got all these other things sort of radiating from the middle. And I can just make a little line, and however they interconnect, I can draw a line from one to the other. And this is a terrible, sloppy outline, but it's the way my brain works. Um, I jump from one thing to the next. One, while I'm working on one thing, the idea for the uh, final battle might be popping up. And then I'll just, I can just zip right over there, pop in. Um, and if this were on a Word document at this stage... I would feel like I need to get through the part that I'm on and couldn't just pop over to the next part. And I wouldn't necessarily be able to visualize how they connect because drawing lines from one to the other isn't that easy or isn't just mindlessly intuitive uh, like it is on paper. So my first round outline is a page with the spark idea in the middle a bunch of lines radiating out and some of those lines having lines to the other things with how they interconnect. And by the time I fiddled with this for a little while, gone through a number of the steps, I know it's, I've got a pretty good idea of what the story is going to be. And without it, trying to write an adventure, plan an adventure without knowing what the story is going to be can almost guarantee that you're ending up, ending up in a hot mess. And I know some game masters can improvise, but while they're doing it, they're improvising from years and years of storylines that they've prepared and they know where it's going or they've, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not necessarily something that everyone can do. I can't do it. Well, if I do try to improvise a game, it ends up sloppy all over the place and it feels like there's no direction. Um, and I just don't like it. That's why I, I'm into writing modules and adventures because, heck, if I'm going to plan out a game, I might as well share it with other people who probably want to do the same. So after that, I've got it on paper. Then I can move to Word and I'll start my Word document. I've got um, my headings um, are in my style guide already set up and um, I've got highlighted text it's sort of like a template that I use for everything for adventure writing so that I can try to be consistent I almost never am but I, I try to be <laughs> and how important is that uh, it's really important when you go to your uh, editor anyway in there then I can sort of organize my um, outline I do another outline this time in, in Word or some other edit, word editing software. And I can feel like I can get through it being in order with, with, uh, with a little bit of direction. So it's, I'm not just all over the place being a hot mess. So then I can, once the outline is in place on the Word document and it's still sloppy 
and it's still much, very much a living d thing um, that gets changed a lot, uh, even as the adventure is written. I leave my outline at the very beginning of the document that I'm working on while I'm writing the document because I can lose track quickly. But sometimes I don't know where to go with something necessarily like in detail, but I've got the outline. So I know that there's a, a um, maybe an exploration piece where there's a bunch of tunnels and I know the, a certain sort of monsters are going to be there. I can jump over and start working on that. Uh, maybe one or two encounters in there and it doesn't get out of place. I'll put a heading over it and I can work on that. And perhaps while working on that, the place where I was stuck in a previous item comes to light and I can go back and finish that off. Um, I really try hard not to write the thing from beginning to end because it, it doesn't, um, it loses its overarching flow. If I'm not paying attention to my outline and almost for all my adventures that I do now. And as I've said, I've made a number of mistakes along the way in writing adventures. And they were, haven't all been stellar. The ones that aren't stellar weren't done with a solid outline and it becomes really clear when you get towards the end of the adventure and challenges like uh, I know 5e has challenge ratings and whatnot um, swords and wizardry has a nice uh, sort of challenge rating system that I really like quite a bit it, those sort of things will help you balance your encounters when I'm writing adventures I like to have a number of encounters where the players can just feel like heroes. Let them just mow down a whole bunch of weaker cannon fodder because that's what they've been that's what their quest for power is about. They've got a little bit. Let them let them exploit it. Let them just wreak havoc and use it so that they feel powerful. They feel confident. They enjoy their characters. Um, if every encounter that they come across is an encounter where they barely survive and crawl away with one hit point or something, you're really taking a lot of the fun and quest for power out of the, the game. So let your characters revel in feeling powerful, but you can't do that all the time because that's also boring. Challenging characters with various types of encounters is always good. And this is why I like writing to the older editions like BX, because every character class has its own specialty department and you can challenge them quite easily. You know which parts of the party you're challenging. So um, it's easy to define an encounter where a thief is going to shine. Everybody gets their chance in the spotlight and in other editions, in the new editions, they probably do too, but where everybody can do a little bit of everything, it can, you can end up with a shy player not having the opportunity to be in the spotlight. 
an example of a great way that um, that that happens. One time, I went to a convention with Frank Menser. Um, I'm trying to remember where it was. It was in northern Wisconsin, um, and there was a he had a group gathered to play in his game, and there was a young girl at the table um, who, I believe had like ADD or, or autism or something like that. I mean, her, her mother played with her. She said, I will, I'm at the table too. Um, if she gets distracted, I'm just going to take over her character and it's fine. So Frank under, like acknowledged that understood she was rather young, maybe like nine or so. And we got into the adventure. She had, I don't remember what character she had an elf or a halfling or something. Um, and there was a trap. And, of course, this is one of those things that Frank just does on the fly. He's done it a hundred times. Um, there was a door or something like that that the party could not open. They couldn't figure out. They, they were trying everything they could think of, whatever. So he took the young girl aside and said, Your character, whatever their name was, uh, just discovered this small wire in the wall and figured out that if you pull on it, you can open the door. You know, you have the secret to open this door. That's got everybody stumped. Well, this is a party. This is a table full of adults, you know? And so the young girl came back to the table and Frank continued on the game. And I think there was a couple more attempts at trying to get this door open or whatever to move the adventure forward. And the young girl finally, uh, Frank gave her an opportunity and she came forward and suddenly there is a table full of adults hanging on every, hanging on what the nine-year-old at the table is going to do. And with the information that she had, she figured, opened the door and she, and it wasn't like she didn't hang it like a carrot. She just, she was very, um, team participatory in the way she did it and she's like you know she started a role playing almost immediately i think i figured it out everybody and here's how the door works and i can open it whenever you're ready and it was really just great and she had put her in the spotlight um so allowing every class every character in the adventure to have a little spotlight is is nice and it's super easy to do in a BX sort of style game because fighters have their thing they, they're going to do. There's going to be monsters to fight hand to hand. Um, clerics, uh, there's going to be healing. There's going to be spells. There's going to be support places where light and things are needed. Wizards, there's going to always be like wizards bend the rules of the game with their spells and whatnot. And thieves are, you know, getting into the doors and, halflings and their sneaky stuff and elves finding secret doors just by walking past them near them and things like that. Um, so varying the challenges without being deadly, but keeping them challenging. You know, this is like, there's a juggling act. If everybody almost dies at every encounter, the adventure stops being fun. If they walk through them, it stops being fun. Um, so we're looking for a balance and we're looking for everybody at the table to have a moment to shine. Well, when we get up to the 
closer to the end, the bigger monsters, then that's when we want it to be a challenge. And a monster, I say monster quite loosely, it could just be the mayor of the town or whatever, whatever the, the heap challenge, um, the crescendo of the adventure is, um, that's when you really want the struggle to come through. That's when it should almost be a close call. Uh, and it, and again, if all of your adventures, that, has, that one is, a, is the exact close call, you start to get predictable. So sometimes your crescendo is actually not the main villain of the adventure. It could be somewhere partway through. It could be that the villain of the adventure is a low-level wizard, but they have a following of 200 kobolds. So the crescendo challenge of where everybody crawls away wounded is quite earlier, midway through the adventure. But the emotional crescendo is when they defeat the final villain. So that's encounters. Treasure in BX gets doled out generously. Um, an experience point is a gold piece or a gold piece is an experience point as well as monster experience points. So in later editions in 5e, this works quite a bit differently, but I'm talking about earlier editions. So when it comes to handing out treasure in later editions, refer back to the standard of that system. And I can't advise very well on, Newer editions when it comes to treasure balance because I lose control of it myself, so I'm not going to advise anyone. Earlier editions, uh, magic items are relatively common, and I like them to pop in and out of the game. By by third level, most everybody should have some sort of nifty magic item, so uh, nothing extraordinary. I mean, we're talking like plus one dagger stuff. But something. Um, but because in some of my adventures that I write and some of the encounters are will drain magic. Uh, some monsters are attracted to magic and it behooves everyone to hide their stuff, their magic items somewhere and use them as bait for traps and just things happen. Fumbles happen, adventure happens. And I like I like that there's that the players are always like thinking that the next great magic item, great magic treasure is not too far away. So I will be generous with that. Not overly, but reasonably generous with magic items and gold pieces in an adventure because those experience points are necessary. They're a really important one that often gets forget forgotten is scrolls. In Labyrinth Lord, it talks about this in the book, um, you you uh, wizards will pick their two first level spells and one second level spell, and that's what they've got in their spell book. The rest you have to find in adventuring. So scrolls are monumentally important to wizards. Wizards don't necessarily want to get another dagger plus one or dagger plus two. They're not going toe to toe anyway. That's not their priority. However. They will go to the ends of the earth for 
another wizard's spellbook or scrolls. Remember to put spells in as treasure. <laughs> it really works great, and it gives the wizard something to. Um, it, it gives the it gives the wizard a, a place. You know what I'm saying? A, an anchoring point. Some, and the more spells they have, the more valuable they are to the party, and the more everyone is ready to protect them. Another thing that I like to do is put in items of value as treasure that aren't gold pieces, like um, a large bolt of fine silk could be worth a thousand gold pieces. However, it's also weighs, I don't know, I'm going to pick a number, 80 pounds is and is four feet long and I don't know. I, I would have to I would have to do some research. A foot across or something, it's heavy. It's a big, chunky, awkward thing, but it's worth a thousand gold pieces. So what happens I is often the party will say, okay, we'll come back for it. And if they're not taking notes and not playing wisely, they don't come they forget to come back for it. I've had I've given adventuring parties literally thousands, tens of thousands of gold pieces uh, throughout the course of a couple of adventures. And because they didn't go back, they didn't get it. They missed out on levels and experience points and treasure. But it's also super fun. It's super interesting. If you have a if you have an adventuring group of somebody that loosely takes notes, they will remember where those things are and go back and get them. And I, I like it as an adventure continuation item um, because if they clear out a place and they, they don't come back until a month later, well, when they get back, there could be an entire troop of orcs or hobgoblins taking that that rare art piece of artwork, art object, statue, and strapping it to a wagon and getting ready to take it themselves and it gives you it's a nice continuity it makes it feel realistic if you think of that like if you go to like a super wealthy show-off like hip-hop artist which is kind of like almost what a wizard sort of is and you know they they, they want they live this extravagant life they've got somehow they've gathered up millions of gold pieces and they're going to show it off in their surroundings not just like like what fun is it to have a pile of gold pieces would it be more fun to have you know a bath a bathhouse completely covered in luxurious marbles and silks and rare furs or whatever you know whatever so there's treasure in the surroundings and i write that in when i roll monster on the monster treasure tables. And I, I roll. When I write adventures, I'm rolling the dice. So I go through all those percentages and roll them. What comes up, comes up. And I write those treasures into the adventure. So if it comes up as, as like super, super top-end treasure, there's no reason that um, the evil wizard wouldn't want to be living in some luxury. I guess the last piece of adventure writing that I'm, that I'm going to add is to give the heroes something worth fighting for and um that is 
if you if I put in NPCs and things, I don't make every one of them turn into a doppelganger or every one of them turn into an assassin. It's just it's just too much. I, you let the party have friends. Let them have acquaintances. Let give them something to defend. Give them someone that they care about and is consistent and that they can trust. Um, I I like to. There's a one adventure that I was working on. And, I, and I'm going to bring this NPC back. So maybe I'm giving something away here. I don't know. Uh, you can you can trap all of the villagers, villagers or, or set their village on fire that you want. And everybody just sort of has a ho-hum attitude. But um, in one adventure, there was a basset hound, a ghost of a basset hound in these tombs. And half everybody was up, suddenly was paying attention and the person I thought wasn't paying attention jumped forward in their seat and said, Oh, if this SOB hurt, killed that dog. (laughs) But throughout the adventure, this ghost basset hound was sort of their, um, storyline informant a little bit. And he was looking for his, he was loyal to his master and he's telling the story. Uh, but, they, the, at that point, the party would have done anything and everything that the, the, the Basset Hound wanted or needed or whatever to find his rest or happiness. So giving the, giving the party something they can connect to, you can say the village is on fire or you can say your family's house is on fire and there's a completely different connection and in Dungeons and Dragons it's hard sometimes for players to figure out what their character's connection their their motivation would be to do this big quest and it's not always just throwing out gold pieces you really have to find something but cautiously. So if a character is telling you that they have family members, don't just always latch onto that and use those family members as prisoners and ways the villains hostages hold hostages and all this sort of thing. Give them different reasons. Um, maybe the, the family members may need, uh, you know, a little help at the farm or something, you know, keep it. Keep, keep the connection with them strong. Keep those things relatively safe, but don't over-abuse that as a motivator. Just, just letting characters uh, build a connection to the things around them. Um, even a shop owner. If you use a, the same voice and the same name for the shop owner every time and make that character memorable... The part that's something that's something that the party will fight to protect and if that shop owner has had something stolen it's not life-threatening it's not the end of the world but the party will want to help out that shop owner or if they have rats in their basement as my favorite adventure hook is then they'll go down there and happily help out that shop owner with the rats in their basement i hope all this was helpful the show ran a little longer than usual today usually i try to make it like a cuppa so you can have a cup of tea and get through the show um, in 20 minutes or so. Um, I would love to hear anybody else's um, advice on writing adventures and how it works for you. 
But for me, it certainly is looking for inspiration, starting with the outline. And again, that tome of adventure design from Matt Finch, I'm not getting... I'm not getting... I don't have Frog God Games behind me throwing me money to, to pitch that or anything else. I'm just pitching it because I use it. Uh, same with Don John, all those. Um, I don't have sponsors yet. I would happily take take sponsors. And if I get them, though, I always I will always let you know that I am being sponsored by something. However, right now, I am not. I have no sponsors. These are just the avenues that I use for writing adventures. Thanks for listening to Maximum HP. You can find more Maximum HP episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Anchor, or over at MaximumHP.com. I want to hear your thoughts and opinions on today's show. You can leave a voice recording on Anchor, or comment or message at MaximumHP.com. Be good and do good. Thanks again for listening. Turn it off. It's Fehu Games. Fehu, Fehu, Fehu Games. Maximum HP. Over on Patreon.com forward slash Fehu Games or on Anchor.fm, you can sponsor or contribute to the Maximum HP podcast and Fehu Games Adventures, just like HM Sims Development. HM Sims Development is a new and emerging technology incubator, providing the resources and environment to explore promising new sciences and discover new technologies through a supportive project framework. HM Development, finding the future. Thank you for your support.